powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello there, Duvall Nation. Hi there, everyone. Hi, hi. Thanks, Jeff Brown, for that welcome. I am Derek, and this is the hottest new talk show on the internets. The Derek Duvall Show, now in its second great year, and our footprint can now be felt on six of the seven continents. Don't worry, I'm coming for you, Antarctica. Before we get into the show, we need to discuss some news we got over the week. Uh, It has been brought to my attention that the subject of episode 21, Mr. Dick Phelan, one of the last survivors of the USS Indianapolis disaster, tragically passed away at 94 from complications of COVID. Interviewing Dick and being granted the very last interview from a survivor of the sinking will be forever one of the greatest honors of my life. I do not embellish that at all. Wherever you are, stop what you're doing right now and acknowledge the passing of the true American hero. Just say, thank you, Dick. I am sure he would love that. So it looks like we are going to have to change our life to accommodate living with the virus for a while. But the good news is concerts are starting to open up. I am getting to live out a bucket list moment by securing tickets to see Tool. Now, whatever your opinion of Maynard may be, and some of it is rightfully justified, believe me, I am so excited to see this band finally live after two prior failed attempts. It's a long shot, but I'm really hoping they play right in two, which to me is one of the greatest Tool songs ever. In my humble opinion, maybe one of the greatest prog rock songs ever. So if they're coming to an arena near you, go see them. I hear they put on one hell of a show. So, welcome to episode 28. We want to welcome, for the first time ever, a very special guest. That guest is an actor, an activist, astronomist, an all-around amazing man, Mr. Tim Russ. He is going to be talking to us today about his humble beginnings, offers some real insight into the COVID pandemic, his time with the Star Trek franchise, his partnership with NASA, and so much more. Plus, if you have ever wanted to get into astronomy, this episode will speak to you. Like I said, lots packed into this episode, so let's not wait another minute. Duval Nation, rise to your feet, and welcome to the show direct from Los Angeles, California, Mr. Tim Russ. Tim, good afternoon. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How's your day been so far, and what's the weather like out there with you right now? So far, the day's been great. I, uh, the weather is lovely. It's actually been, I have to say, for Southern California, where I am, it's pretty mild this summer. It's been uh, relatively mild, like between um, 80 uh, and 90 degrees on average um, for the last two months. Uh, it's been pretty consistent like that. I used to live out in San Diego when I was in the Navy. I remember the, the weather down there was just pretty steady for about nine months yeah. of the year. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, especially San Diego. I am more southern LA than San Diego. Yeah. So I like to start my interviews with the same question I ask everyone, and that is, how hard has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world we're currently living in? You know, I think like a lot of people, especially um, 
in the era that I'm living in. I think um, it, it, what's, what's difficult about it was the, the lack of work or the loss of work uh, due to uh, postponements and things uh, because of COVID. That's been the most difficult thing to deal with over the last year and a half. Um, there's a lot of projects that I was scheduled to shoot in 2020 that had to be pushed until this year. And so far, I've been able to catch up on most of them, but there's still some that have been pushed and postponed again until 2022. In that regard, it's not good. The rest of it's just mechanical. I mean, the masks and the uh, vaccinations and all that business, that's been fairly easy, pretty straightforward. It is what it is, you know, sometimes a hassle, but, you know. I think we're getting to a point where we just kind of have to live with it and just kind of navigate the best we can at this point. Oh, yeah, we're we're going to have to live with it for the duration, I'm sure. It's just a question of, you know, with uh, with my line of work, if I, you know, uh, being vaccinated, I'm not worried about you know, any kind of a severe side effect from this thing. What I'm worried about is just, you know, if I had to catch it from somebody and I test, I test positive for a job that I book, you know, an acting gig, they won't let me on the set. Yeah. So, you know, then I lose, you know, whatever job that is. I mean, it might be a really sweet one. You know, I wouldn't be able to work until a certain period of time has gone by and I can test negative. So that that's the only issue is for me as far as, worrying about catching it. Um, I, I'm not concerned about the health issue because I've, I've got a, a vaccination already. So, um, and whatever subsequent boosters and whatever that come out, but uh, it's just a matter of testing positive when I'm trying to, you know, uh, to work on a, on a particular job. I can't afford to have that, otherwise I don't, I don't work. I wish more people were more forward thinking with your line in terms of getting the vaccine. Trust me, it's been a, where I live here in the United States, it's been, uh, it's like, shoveling crap of hell it's it just no one wants to do it so where's that uh what part of the country tulsa oklahoma oh my god yeah. yeah 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 you're in the middle of it um yeah you're in the middle of it i mean i dare say that even you know even here uh, we had we had protests right around the corner from where i live at a restaurant because the restaurant you know uh, demanded that their employees um and staff all get the uh, vaccines Mm-hmm. And they came out for some reason and, and you know, were regular. And matter of fact, not only that, but the, but the patrons had to prove that they were vaccinated before they could come into the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And these people were protesting for a week, almost a week and a half solid every single day out front of the restaurant. It's not a big crowd. It's really small, but noisy and vocal. And it's literally around the corner from where I live in West Hollywood, for God's sakes. And it's, uh, you know, everybody here follows all the rules and does what they're supposed to do. But, you know, that's what, you know, I was putting up with for a week and a half right here in, uh, in West Hollywood, California. Man. I mean, you wouldn't expect that to be seen here. Yes, Orange County, you're going to see that, you know, that, that they have, uh, they're just pretty much like Oklahoma. There's not much difference there. And that's about 35 miles from the city. It does exist in, in places in Cali, no question about it. But but obviously in, in some of the red states or the Trump states or whatever it comes out to be, they're, they're much more uh, virulent about the whole thing. And, and it's still a relative minority compared to the numbers in the country who believe it uh, and vaccinations and are getting them. But it's still, you know, it, 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 what pains me is that it's, it's, it's not based on any fact. It's just it's just conspiracy and fear-mongering and uh, propaganda and uh, and politicization of, of the whole thing. That's all it comes down to. And because because uh, the president suggests doing it and the former president didn't like it, that becomes an issue. So, 
that's it, man. That's the only reason that any of this is happening at all. Literally the only reason. The part that I, I've talked to this about with a couple of friends of mine, I think actually my wife recently, is my in Oklahoma, our governor, Governor Stitt, he was the first governor to test positive with COVID. And it made mm-hmm. him very, very, very sick. And yet he's mm-hmm. 100% out there. No, don't get it. No, no, no we don't need masks. Yeah. And it, it just yeah. it, it baffles. I don't know if it's just towing a party line or if it's just, you know, logic has gone out the window. I, I just, yeah. Logic and reasoning yeah. here takes a huge hit in our state. So, well, it's not just the state, man. This is nationwide. I mean, we're not talking. We're talking about people being physically threatened. We're talking about um, the, the, them threatening school board members, literally threatening them. Like out point blank on camera and on video, threatening their lives or inciting violence against them because they suggest wearing a bloody mask. I mean, a four-inch piece of cloth on their face. I mean, Cenk Uger, who's on Young Turks, he mentioned about it. His his kid went to class, you know, in school, and there was, uh, they were sitting around. Was it it a class or was it a a private function? Something that they went to. Was it about six or seven other kids sitting around the table? I think it was at school. And they all had uh, masks on. And it turned out that a couple, three days later, one of the kids at the table who was sitting there next to his his own uh, child uh, caught COVID or had it rather while they were in the class. They tested positive for COVID, but nobody at the table, including the teacher, caught COVID because they all had masks on. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. It's a simple equation. It's a simple point of fact, but it is now uh, politicized. I mean, obviously, you know, these people can understand English. They know what, you know, uh, the facts and details are, but they're, that's not what they're being told. You know, they're being told and suggested by uh, propaganda outlets that, are, that call themselves news, literally to take horse deworming medication. That's gone off the shelves. People can't find that. But the vaccines are going stale because nobody's using them. This is the this is the madness that we're in the mire of right now. This is madness, man. And that's because of propaganda. Nothing but propaganda designed to divide and to create fear and 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 loathing in half the population or at least 35% of it. And that's what we're stuck with. That's why it looks like a Twilight Zone episode. I don't know how long that's gonna last. And, how long it's going to be, but if it were more lethal, we'd be done with them in about two months from now. But <laughs> unfortunately, it's not. There's, there's, been, there a lot, there's been a lot of people I agree with that actually say that exact same thing. That it, oh, 100%. Everybody clawing to get the, the vaccine. So. Well, maybe. Uh, maybe they would, and maybe they wouldn't. You know, if they're still listening to this nonsense and acting as, I mean, I don't know. Anybody who's going to go use a deworming medication for animals instead of the vaccine. You know, I, I'm not sure that it would make any difference if everybody around them was dropping dead or not. I don't, I don't know if it would. People have, and who have been dropping dead in the hospitals have argued that they weren't dying of COVID. You know, to the nurses, screaming at them, well, screaming as much as they could scream when they're on the ventilator, but they were, you know, arguing with the nurses, denying that they were dying of something that they were dying of. I mean, when it's, you know, it, that's, that's how far this madness has gone. And, and it's, it's madness has been perpetuated upon us. It's not a madness that came from a groundswell. 
there's always been you know a faction of the left even that has been um, anti-vax but that's a really small percentage of people i mean that's negligible in terms of the number of folks who were doing this before it became i don't know hysteria like it is now but it is not that and uh, my <laughs> i tell my daughter my reference point goes back a long long way so i don't this is even more of an issue for me than is anything else because i can compare it to when there was a time when we were actually sane you know for the most part as a country i mean relatively sane like everybody understood the same information and the same facts and everybody agreed on you know they may not have liked those facts and you might have disagreed on you know whatever the issues were but but you understood the same basic information you know brick wall was a brick wall and there was no denying that it was a brick wall but now the brick wall is a you know a bag of marshmallows and so some people believe that and now you've got how do you how do you function in a society when when that's what you have you know not shame so i want to go ahead and take it back to the beginning you're a child of an air force officer correct that's correct yeah. um, what was it like to move from base to base growing up uh, it was uh, not that much fun because I, I, you know, when you're moving like that every couple of years, you're, you, you can't, you make friends and you have to say goodbye to them or they had to say goodbye to you because everybody was moving no matter how you looked at it. And, and the main issue is back then we didn't have social media. So now you've lost contact with these people. They're virtually gone. And you had to write letters back in those days and you know, might do that for a couple of months and then all of a sudden, you know, that's it. So you lose contact with these folks, you never see them again. And it was constant like that every couple of years growing up. You know, not to mention, I mean, if you didn't like, if you liked the place you were living, you know, you have to say goodbye and you don't know where you're ending up and then might not like the place that you're headed to uh, as much. Um, you have to get to the new place and you had to fit in and make new friends all over again. There was a certain degree of stress in that. And, and you know, I wasn't crazy about it every time it happened. So, you know. How many times did you move? Do you remember? Probably uh, every two years from the time I was born until the time I was 18. So wow. that number of times, yeah. It was as I was born in uh, Washington, D.C. I was only there for six months, you know, as an infant. So, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I only visited the place a couple of times. I didn't, that's not home to me. It's just a place where I was born. And uh, I've been in several of uh, no, it was not. It was national. I think it was National Hospital or something, National, Washington National, something like that. I think mm. it's on the birth certificate. But At uh, what age did you decide you want to pursue a career in acting? Uh, when I was 16, I think, uh, is when I decided uh, I really liked the profession and business. I liked the craft and the art, and I decided to pursue it. Uh, when I graduated at 18, I went to go study at the college. And then after college, I took off a couple of college and then some graduate school. And then I took uh, about two years off, fucked around for a bit, and then decided to go pursue this uh, full-time as a career. You have a pretty edu impressive education, St. Edwards and Illinois State. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a BA and then about a year of postgraduate work. I didn't I didn't get a master's in theater. I just I just did some graduate work at the time, and I, and I decided to come home. I was getting pretty tired of I'm getting tired of school in general, but I'm getting tired of, I didn't like that school that wasn't really doing anything for me in terms of, you know, the school, the undergraduate program that I went to was fantastic in Texas. And then the other one was more academia and I was like, yeah, whatever. I, I needed to, to get more hands-on work 
you know, going. So I left and uh, came back to California and decided to uh, jump into the fray. And that was probably the best thing I could have done. And timing-wise, it was it worked out because at that time, the, the uh, landscape of this business was different than it is now. Very, very different um, in so many ways. And, uh, and the availability of work was different as well. How hard was it to break into the business? It was it was difficult, and it was still a, it was a lot of work. It was hard to get it to get the ball rolling. Uh, there were times when I was very uh, stressed about it and, and and or anxious about it as to whether or not I was going to get my shot and get a chance. And took um, obviously the help of um, of a really decent agent finally because I went to several that weren't that good, and then also took uh, being here at the right place at the right time and being able to score you know, the uh, interviews that I got. And that's when it was. It was about four or five years for me to, to get the ball rolling from the time I hit the ground here. About five years. And I uh, played uh, uh, music because I've been a musician for a long time. I played music a lot during, during that time. I was supporting myself playing in clubs and things back then. But it took five years, easily five years for me to get a really... My first break was about four, four and a half. I got a, a book, a uh, Broadway show, uh, Dream Girls at the time that had come mm. through town. Uh, Jennifer Holiday was singing with us, as a matter of fact, and I, I was in that show for about three or four months and made some pretty decent money, and it was a good break for me. There was some time off after that. Uh, the show took off, and I didn't go on the tour with them and waited for the next opportunity. And it was just, you know, at a small agency with a, a very new agent who hadn't really been doing it that long. She just came into the business, but she was a really good salesman. She got me in the door, and I was able to read for, you know, a really good-sized project, and that's where the ball started rolling, and I never looked back after that. It's just a matter of, you know, being the right place at the right time, for sure. Now, your film and television credits, they're wide, incredibly impressive, and very diverse from mid-'80s to present. And I, before we get into Star Trek or any of that, I want to ask you about some of your other roles. And mm -hmm. so I see you did an episode of Starman. Now I had Robert Hayes on the show a couple of months ago, and he spoke fondly of his time working on that show. What do you remember of that appearance? I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. Uh, Robert is wonderful. Uh, absolutely wonderful actor to work with. And I remember it was, a, I think it was in a, a jail scene or something that I had. I think I was in a with jail with him or something. And he said something or did something. And it was, I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? something in that in that ballpark he said or did something that I was like taken aback with him and it was a funny it was it was a cute scene it was a funny scene and, and I remember uh, I remember working on that show uh, that many years ago he was great I remember he was really a sweet guy really a nice guy yeah he was a, definitely a pleasure to, to talk to he was a, it's a, absolutely it's yeah a, such a diverse work and such a great knowledge of film and so forth it was yes yes wonderful of course, you bounced along with a lot of uh, fandoms. You got uh, the cult classic Beauty and the Beast under your belt. Um, yeah, I did Beauty and the Beast, and that was just a, God, it was a cop role, I think. I think I played a detective or something on, on that show. Um, I, we came pulling into um, some crime scene or something or other, driving across a field uh, to the location, like a, I don't know, it was a barn. I don't know what it was. It was something we drew, we drove into. It was, a, it was just a cop role. I've done a lot of cop roles. <laughs> I saw that. Years, yeah, I... <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of cop roles, and that was that Beauty and the Beast was just a cop role, you know. I mean, it was the series of the shows, 
Do you ever go back and look at some of the work you've ever done? Like, you know, just bits, parts here, bit parts there. And just... No, I have no desire to look at all that stuff. And I, I actually don't have it. So it'd be mm. very tricky or very difficult for me to see it. I only, I only keep the, the more recent work, only snippets of that work for demo purposes. I mm. restructure the demo every now and then. So I will hold on to uh, a few pieces here and there that it might be older because they are because of the way I look in them or because they're such a, a standout piece compared to the other stuff. It's a, the, the way that they're shot, the way that the image looks. The, um, I'll put them on there. So, and there's only I think there's one scene that I have on my reel that's by now a number of years old, but because of the way it looks and the way it's shot. You know, it could have been done yesterday because it's kind of, a, I want to say, fantasy piece. Um, it's a noir style black and white uh, piece in which I look, you know, older than I did at the time I shot it. So it matches closer to where I look now. And it just stands out as a piece that's not, uh, that, that doesn't age. So I can leave it on there. And the other stuff I just update based on whatever's current. And so if I get new footage for something I've just done, I just go ahead and, and update the reel because I need the, the reel to be relatively current. So because if they book, if they look at that and they cast me and I look, old, you know, a lot different than what's on the demo tape, then they're not going to be so happy. So um, they want to know what you look like right now. Right. And that's what, that's what I'll do. The, the stuff that, that, that I've done oh, since 1980. Oh, my God. No, I don't. I, I haven't caught any of that stuff in anybody's, you know, syndicated rerun anywhere. People have contacted me once in a while and said that they saw me on something that old or whatever. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a while back. And But I haven't, I don't watch that stuff. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, the next one is uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And um, did you remember working with anybody on there? And if so, did, oh, you watch, sure. did you watch the reunion on HBO Max? I did not watch the reunion. And I think I did, I might have done two of those. Did I do one or you two? two? I don't you, know. did, you did two episodes. Yeah, I did two shows, uh, two episodes. Yeah, it was, it was great to work with those guys because they're uh, they're a wonderful uh, cast to work with. Uh, Will Smith was great. Everybody was gracious. Everybody was really sweet. And and I got to say, as a, as a, just as a footnote in general, um, of all of those projects that I've worked on, I cannot say that I did not enjoy working on them with the people that, that were on the shows except for maybe one of the soaps. Soap operas, not so much. <laughs> they were kind of cold and impersonal. And those are the only the only types of projects that I've worked on. I didn't enjoy it. Hmm. But, you know, it wasn't like you know, some actors screaming and hollering and complaining about this or whatever, or giving me a hard time. It was just an atmosphere that was not very pleasant, but uh, not very warm and fuzzy. But everything else was, is 100%. I've never had to deal with anybody with, you know, these insane attitudes or blowing up or screaming and hollering or not to have whatever. Uh, not a single solitary time have I had to deal with that um, in all of those projects. And that's a lot of projects. Over my years, being doing what I do and, and also in my personal life, I, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of what you would call celebrities. And for the 90, 95% of them are just some of the most down to earth, nicest, warmest people you'd ever want to meet, professionals in any way, shape, or form. And then you yeah. get the five percent who, wow, really? So I, I get it, you know. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had, I, I, you know, I've had maybe one, maybe one instance where the actress that I was working with was not treating the crew with any respect. She was very disrespectful towards the crew a couple of times, and I witnessed that. And 
that was it. She didn't bother me. She got along with me great, but she did not treat the crew very nicely. And I, I thought that was unnecessary to say the least. Mm-hmm. The crew is uh, the people that really work the hardest on set, man. And I always make it a point to uh, congratulate and thank everybody before I leave set when I'm signing off of a show or been, been shot out of the show and I'm all done with it. Um, I try to say tell everybody thank you and uh, appreciate their work because they're humping, man, on that uh, show. And, and they're there from sunup to sundown. They're there from the beginning to the end where you can come in and do, you know, five, six, eight lines and go home, you know, and get paid pretty well for it, some projects. So... That's important. Uh, that was the. I think that much I have to say that there's any time where there was anybody who I worked with, who, you know, I didn't didn't really like the way that they, you know, behaved. It's just that was the only instance. But outside of that, you know, and she might have been on. If she if you were working with her or talked to her, it might be very different with you. She might not. Again, she might treat you the same way she treated me, which was she treated me totally fine with the, all the respect there is. But that's it. You know, I, I, I'm just stunned. I mean, I would be a terrible source for the uh, gossip magazines. I can tell oh, you yeah. that because I don't I don't have any heavy duty stories. None of them, really. No. And and we're talking about you know superstars, man. I've worked yeah. with Miley Cyrus and a bad. You know, Freaking wonderful, man. I mean, just wonderful. I worked on kids' shows, Disney shows, Nickelodeon shows. The kids were great, for God's sakes, man. They were fabulous. And they worked their tails off. So, you know, I, no, I, nothing, nothing at all that was, uh, that has been an issue, really, for me, uh, from what I've seen and worked with. And I, I got to say, that's just, to me, I mean, to me, that seems that's strange. Lucky. You wouldn't Very lucky. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, very, very lucky. And I think, like you said, I think it's more common than it is not, because for the most part, I mean, those people, you know, even if they're having a bad day, they're thankful to have that job because yeah. they know how hard it is to get and how rare they are. And they are rare and they are hard to get. So you've got to be appreciate. You've got to appreciate. You know, you don't know what's going on, you know, with the the management and labor. You don't know, how, you know, what the negotiations are and the issues are with the producers and the execs and all that shit. You know, that could be, you know, that could be a, a, a maelstrom of craziness going on there, but you don't see it on the set. You know, at least I haven't anyway. It's been my experience, you know, meeting these people, you know, you, you watch their body of work and they started off with very, very small roles. You know, they've worked their way up to where they are now. And it's, exactly. I always say, I always say this: uh, unless you're Alan Rickman, you know, no one comes in, you know, firing on all cylinders right away. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, it, it certainly helps in in many cases to be able to uh, get your uh, you know feet wet in in the, in the business, just getting started before you jump into the whole thing full tilt. Just to have the opportunity to work your way up the ladder, it just makes a lot of sense, you know, because you yeah. you gain experience that way as well. And um, and you're not just thrown into the middle of the pond and you know, fighting for your life. So and some people you ca- can do that because they're just that's just the way it is. Their DNA lined up and they're you know they can they can fall out of bed and do it and you're blown away. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just the way it is. Um, and it's that way for literally everything you know in the world. I don't care what business or profession it is, man. You know, I mean, uh, architects that can design a building, you know, far and above you know, the capacity of anybody else, and they can do it in their sleep. And, you know, people who can swim, you know, the laps of an Olympic swimming pool at, you know, 100 miles an hour, and everybody else is left behind. And they're singers that can sing, you know, operas at 12 years old. I mean, what, huh? You know, and actors, actors and comedians who are just astonishing. 
dancers and guitars, musicians. I mean, it crosses the board. That doesn't matter what it is. It's just there's only going to be a, a handful of standout uh, on the planet uh, throughout time. And they are only going to duplicate over a period of time because nature doesn't do that commonly. She only duplicates over a period of time. Your involvement in Star Trek is quite impressive with appearances in films and the shows all the way up to your main role in 170 episodes of Star Trek Voyager. What is it about Star Trek that first appealed to you? Well, Star Trek was, I mean, I, I when I was growing up watching uh, syndicated television uh, show was on all the time i mean it ran five days a week every day almost on anybody's network you know um for years uh decades you know alongside everything else i love lucy and gilligan's island i miss all those shows just as often you know andy and mayberry i mean could quote lines from all of those shows so we all my friends and i my family we watched all these things whenever we had a chance to quite often all the way through college i want to say and then you know booking the show was wasn't a question of what appealed to me it was a question of i have an audition given to me by my agent at three o'clock on a thursday and i gotta get my ass over there to go do it and that's exactly what happens and the process was you know actually about a seven-year process to get to Voyager. I worked for those guys on their as a guest star appearance on two of their shows and then on a featured role uh, on the uh, one of the feature films. Mm-hmm. And that's only because I read for those parts over a period of three years. I was reading for the shows for at least three years before I booked one, as it were. And I read for for series regular roles on it. I read for guest star roles on it. It didn't happen for three years. Finally, at the end of three years, they they booked me. Then they booked me again, and they booked me again, and then they put the series together, and they brought me in to read for the uh, lead role of the series. And it, 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 that could have been, you know, it could have been Baywatch just as easily as Star Trek. Something, you know. <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah. it's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. If they had said, go read for this at uh, Universal or Paramount or wherever it is, and what's the show? Okay, whatever. What's the role? Okay, thank you. I'm gone, and I'll go and do it. Series regular role, you're damn right. I'm gonna go read for it. You know, my only hope is that the show's gonna stay on for three or four or five years at least. So that's it. It wasn't a preference for it. it. You know, I was aware of the show. I remember the show because you know, grew up watching it in syndication for years. So with Leonard Nimoy and Mark Leonard uh, setting the bar for playing Vulcans, what did you take from them, and how did you make the character of Tuvok your own? Well, initially, I just needed to sort of make an amalgam, uh, put together an amalgam of, of the roles and the characters that have been portrayed before me. I just had to make sure that I got the basics right, uh, not only for the producers, but obviously for the people watching, because they know the characters. So I can't go in there, you know, doing some craziness that doesn't match up. This character had to be, had to appear right at the very beginning from the time he walks through the door has to be that Vulcan character. And he's... You know, his character is 100% Vulcan, whereas Nimoy's is only half. So I had to layer an extra, put an extra layer of Vulcan on top of him. And then it's just up to the writers and myself or whoever it comes out to be to, to create, uh, to flesh out the character. So you're not going to know who they are in the, in the beginning of a series. You're not going to know them really that much at all. All they're doing is getting things done until they've had a chance to give you a backstory or two to flesh out who you are. Do they give you like a future of like where you're going to be? They give you like, you know, here we're going to do five seasons. No, no, no. They they just said, 
I knew that the show was going to run for probably run for five to seven years. But, you know, as far as where the character was going, no, because they haven't written those stories yet, you know, and the, the character is fleshed out by stories. You know, when the character is faced with a really difficult circumstance or situation, how do they handle it? You know, how do they react? What decisions do they make under very stressful or difficult certain circumstances and how do they behave in those circumstances? That's what gives you the character. You know, what choices do they make? What decisions do they make? How do they handle those circumstances? Um, and we had many episodes where we got a chance to see my character, you know, uh, you know, in those circumstances, which were very difficult. But you want to see what this person, this character is going to do. And even a character like mine, that doesn't, you know, is not, it's very much in control of their emotions. I guess don't display them that often. So everything is done very subtle uh, in terms of whatever attitude or mood he might be in. It's very subtle. My buddy used to call it, uh, uh, what is it, um, playing King Lear with an eyebrow. I mean, that's basically what you're doing. Yeah. You're, you're, you just keep it, everything is just kept very subtle and very contained. You know, as an actor, I, I, I would say the same thing. It's like I, I trained for years to, to be able to show emotion and I end up booking up an iconic role that in which I don't show emotion. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. And they let me out of the box a couple of times, obviously, because they have to, because it's a storyline. So you get to see him with, without control of his emotions in two different episodes. And, you know, they're going to do that because that's just the way series television works. But the character is basically uh, an amalgam of a number of the Vulcans that have already been established. Um, if it was a character that nobody had ever seen before, an alien, the way that Nimoy originally portrayed him, he, and then i got to come up with stuff that this character is all about. The writers will give you a template. They'll give you some of the things that, you know, some of the, the cultural things and some of the personality things that this particular alien does. I mean, the alien likes to be, the alien is gregarious, or he's jumping around, or he's, he likes to sing things every once in a while. It's a sing-song way in which he speaks. And or he has, uh, he, you know, eats certain things or he, uh, he, you know, whatever. He interacts a certain way. He's very methodical or he's very spiritual. And then you could, from there, you would develop the storylines that have to deal with those attributes and how they are applied. So we already know uh, my character coming in. And my biggest concern was to make sure that the producers liked me so I didn't get replaced by, you know, somebody else. That was the most important thing to me was to make sure that that character was solid uh, when he came in. So um, I wasn't going to do anything that was outside the box as far as that went. Is the Star Trek acting family very tight knit? Do you do you guys spend time talking to each other on a regular basis, or is it just kind of you bump into each other down the road? Yeah, we just more or less bump into each other down the road. It's just when we have you know at the conventions or uh, some kind of interview, something or other, where two or three of us are on at the same time, or it's um, an event of some type we show up at. That's usually how we do it. And uh, I mean, I'm in contact with Ethan Phillips, um, who played Neelix, you know, every now and then. He lives in New York, and we we used to hang out every once in a while and and, uh, and talk. So and and Bob Picardo, I, I I run into every once in a while as well, but but not so much um, anyone else. Uh, don't really you know we don't we have you know some contact information for each other but we don't always and, and once in a while the, the one of us will ask the others for a favor or something or other you know to, to support something or donate something or whatever but that's about it no we don't hang out as family afterwards and we never did really that much on the show either while we were shooting it didn't happen very often when i told my fans you're going to be on the show i asked them to send in a few questions to ask and i picked three but the first question i got to ask mm -hmm. is did you keep any props from the show? 
The only piece that I kept was a piece from my station on the bridge. It's just a plank or a panel. That's it. Very small piece. And I think I still have it. I couldn't absolutely guarantee that I know where it is. But I think <laughs> I think that was the only piece I took from the set as they were taking it apart, as it were. Uh, they just tore that whole thing apart, man. It just went down into pieces, and that was the end of it. So I think I grabbed one piece and took it with me, and that was it. And I couldn't tell you right now where it is in the house. To be honest with you, but, yeah. um, second question was, uh, are you a fan of Kate Mulgrew's portrayal in Orange is the New Black? Oh, yes. it was. She was wonderful in that. I mean, what a switch between the captain and, and that role. Oh, it was just, it was just wonderful. Really, really clever. Very funny. Very cool. She, but she's a consummate uh, performer, man. She's always been that way. I mean, she is super, super pro and very talented. I mean, just from the time she started to now, she's never stopped. She's wonderful. Really, really wonderful. So I, I've asked this to a couple other people. I want to ask the same question to you. Do you enjoy the conventions? And is, is, that, is that something you guys, is it, do you feel obligated you have to do it or do you do it, you know, because you actually want to do it? Those are all paid appearances. So they're they're more or less um, in the line of work, you know. You are compensated for going to meet and greet uh, the fans, and uh, you know they are basically all the same. Mm -hmm. um, they don't change the whole the way that they work, the uh, the interactions, and all that good stuff. Uh, the routine is pretty much the same for all of them, and there's been quite a few, to say the least. And I'm not that I'm not a big fan of traveling that much, you know, to and from uh, the cons. But you know, it's part of the package and part of the deal. Right. I don't mind if they're all right. They're, the fans really appreciate it. To many of them, they may not ever have the opportunity to get a signed photo or a picture with me ever uh, if they don't go to a convention to get it. So um, I can appreciate uh, uh, the fans having that opportunity to uh, to do that or have that. Uh, because of the character that I played on that show. So, yeah, they're they're fine, you know. Like I said, they're, they're, they're bit, the first time I went to it was pretty eye-opening, but after that, it got to be a lot of the same. It was okay. It, it, was, it was fine, you know. And they're and they always very, they're always very cool and, and, and very nice and, uh, and respectful. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break, take some time to get in a nice big stretch, Refill that drink, be it coffee or alcohol. We're not here to judge unless it's 8 a.m. Then you need to seriously rethink your life. Like, dude, seriously. Take some nice, long, deep breaths. Yes, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. This is some promos for some friends of the show and a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hey there, this is Frankie Sparks. And this is Scott Eisenberg. We're married. And we have a podcast called Shoot the Flick. Every week, Scott and I introduce each other to a new movie the other one has never seen. We talk about it, give our thoughts on it, and also share some behind-the-scenes fun facts. We want you guys to come along and enjoy the movies with us. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Shoot the Flick and check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. Come and listen to us now as Frankie and I Shoot, shoot the, the Flick! flick. 
Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add the Derek Duvall Show in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of your application. Hello there, Gigawater gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouthed comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take the aliens did not build the pyramids, Serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking. Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghost of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't like it, them guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay in the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Welcome back to the show, Duval Nation. I want to share something that was sent to me a few hours ago. Kind of fun, weird fact. Did you know pigs don't actually sweat? which makes the phrase sweating like a pig completely null and invalid. Crazy, huh? Look it up. I know I sure had to. Anyways, let's get back to the show. Here is the conclusion of our interview with actor Mr. Tim Russ. Being in one of the most storied franchises in, in entertainment history, it's, you know, how do you handle, you know, fan feedback and meeting them in person? Is it overwhelming sometimes or are they, is everybody pretty nice? Yeah, everybody's great. I mean, they're typically wonderful. Like I said, very nice and very respectful. They are, they are, their enthusiasm and their, they are extraordinarily uh, enthusiastic about the show. They really, really are knee deep into Trek, and in many cases, Trek has affected their lives directly, which will catch you off guard, you know, every time you hear it. Um, very profound effects on some people's lives. Um, uh, positive effects on their lives that in which and at a time when their lives were not very positive and um, and just to, you know as a as an actor talking and talking and saying dialogue hitting my marks and you know going home that's uh, unexpected because you don't all of that is after you've done the work and it's a result of the work it's not while you're doing the work um, for example, if you were if you were out in the field and you were a therapist or you were going to help somebody who's in a, a, a desperate situation, uh, you were rescuing somebody from something, that's hands-on. And you could actually see the effect of that as you did it, you know, as you were performing that activity, that task, you could actually see the results of your actions right in front of you, where as an actor... All you see is, you know, the other actor and, and a bunch of pages of dialogue that they just changed, you know, yesterday, uh, third time. So you're trying to cram all these lines in your head, trying to hit your marks, get your stuff right, so you can get out of there. And you're not thinking about the aftermath. 
You're not involved in the post process. You're not involved in putting it together. It comes on television and then it reruns and reruns and reruns. And you, you've forgotten about most of it. You know, at this point for me, um, I can, I've forgotten a lot more than I can remember. But yet those people out there, some of whom are just watching it for the first time right now, after 21, 22 years, they are, can be profoundly affected by the stuff that I was doing all those years. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, I grew up watching television and film uh, since I was, you know, 10 or whatever, 10, 11 years old, or whatever, we started watching movies. I, you know, I can't say that I ever locked into a piece, a series or whatever it is, or a series of films that affected my life that profoundly. I just enjoyed them. That was all. But uh, some of the people who watch Trek, they have been affected by those shows profoundly uh, in terms of their personal lives. And that's, that's different. That's very unusual. My thing is, uh, this is about a year before the pandemic hit last year. Uh, sorry, two years ago now. I have a friend of mine and a friend who, they're pretty passionate uh, Star Trek fans, and I respect that. I, I, was yeah. never, I was never at that place where, the, you know, like I can remember every episode in detail and what have you. And we're at a poker, we're at a poker game, and in the background, I can hear out of my left ear. They're just debating the the politics of you know one movie or one show. I can't remember which one it was, and I'm just kind of half listening, half not. And it's just the passion that they they talk about it, and you know, I mean, they're able to recall every line, every mm-hmm. you know. I, I it's 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 astounding to me that, mm-hmm. that people take that to that level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they were watching a Trek. They were talking about a Trek uh, episode. Yeah, was, or... uh, the one with um, Captain Picard and the Borg, uh, the First Contact. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. They were yeah. talking about uh, that, and, and it just blew my mind. They were just, I mean, the detail and the arguments they were making, they were making almost, you know, national debate level arguments. You know? Yeah, because, and part, of the, and part of the reason is because, <laughs> part of the reason is because the story if I have to compare, you know, Trek to um, Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or the rest of them, they, those those are more action-based um, types of shows, very basic sort of action-adventure, good guy, bad guy, we're going to we gotta survive being blown up to bits or whatever. Whereas the uh, Trek stories, man, are anything but. Uh, Roddenberry never set out to do, you know, just a, just a you know, uh, an action thing in space. What he set out to do was to tell stories, and Trek tells stories. These, uh, the, the, the traditionally, these guys have written stories that involve themes, that involve social issues, uh, controversial social issues. Uh, his casts are diverse, and they have been since day one. He breaks, they break the molds in terms of, of casting different types of characters and ethnicities, and now even lifestyles, as it were, in the newest shows. Um, they have always broken the mold. They've always pushed the envelope all of that and and they tell stories and they're very deep stories that deal with things that people you know some people 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 believe in certain elements of these things some people believe in uh, whether it's spiritual whether it's political whether it's social whether it's this or that and and it and it gets into some heavy stuff and that's what and and, and you have to you, you have to be thinking when you watch track you can't just be sitting with a bag of popcorn and you know just letting it go over your head you have to you have to be engaged in something like that. And on top of that, you know, Roddenberry set out to show what is potentially a future that that we could have if we, you know, got everything together like we're supposed to. And it shows that people are treated out of the gate 
based on their character, that's how they are treated. They're not treated by how they look, what their appearance is like, and whether they have a lot of money or power, and they get this and everybody else gets crap. That's what we have in this world today. Everybody's treated based on, you know, what their merits are, what their character is, and what their actions are. And that's that future where the people are not judged on these things that are surface is 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 a positive future for humankind. And I think that's that's really important. I mean, if you look at that show, there's not a you know, you know, it's not about how much the paycheck is, you know, and I mean taxes are being paid out of the paycheck and all this kind of stuff. It's just a it's a show that that elevates, you know, what what we could potentially be. And a lot of the people, many of the fans that watch the show, some of them do come from backgrounds in which they were bullied all the time, you know, in school, or they were ostracized, and they were left out. And Trek is inclusive to all these, you know, those types of situations. They include, they felt included in a storyline like that. And it's, 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 a, it's a different, it's an alternative reality. And it's very easy to be swept up in an alternative reality, whether it's Trek or whether it's um, some people into fantasy. Uh, games and fantasy type shows. It's the same thing because it's a, it separates them from the, re, the the real world, which could be miserable for a lot of people. And and a good portion of the Trek audience, I can tell you, is made up of people whose lives may not be all that happy and enjoyable. So, I'll say one more thing about Trek before we move on. But I, I do want to say this: I am a I am a casual fan. I have seen some of the movies. I've seen. A few of the, a few episodes of some of the shows and, and so forth, uh -huh. but I will say that I I grew up idolizing Neil Armstrong and those guys, the Apollo guys, the Gemini guys, you know, space shuttle uh -huh. program, uh -huh. and the idea of exploration in the shows. That's like that's the one theme. It's it's the exploration, and I think that to me, if it was to speak to me personally, that is the aspect of the show that I would take from it, because. I long for the days when we get to set foot on the moon again. I can't wait to see the first man step foot on Mars in my lifetime. It's mm -hmm. those are the things to me that if if there is you know a fandom for Star Trek that I could grab a piece of, that would be it. Uh -huh. Well, you and I are uh, you and I are simpatico on all of that. Uh, I'm an amateur astronomer. In fact, um, I own like six or seven telescopes. Um, one of them is an imaging telescope that's fairly new on the market. And so I'm hands-on studying uh, the universe and the, and the solar system and the galaxy. And I'm also fascinated by science and space science, astrophysics, um, astrobiology, um, planetary science, all that stuff. I follow it uh, religiously and, and also looking forward to the, uh, the newest discoveries that come out. I follow them. I keep up with them 100% of the time very big fan of both the genre of science fiction because of the possibilities that you can get out of the stories that challenge the human condition and challenge our our concepts and our our beliefs and our uh, preconceptions um, I love all of that stuff because you just you can you can deal with issues and stories and perspectives that nobody's ever done before and that's a very cool thing you know just because it's different for God's sakes so from, a, from an actual science standpoint, I'm right in line with you. I've always been that way. It's coincidental that I happened to have you know, gotten into astronomy even before Star Trek and then end up booking a show that's based on that kind of thing. I, yeah, I mean, but that, I was doing this years, 35 years in that time. So I'm fascinated with all of it, of, of the hard science and the real science it, this, this entire time. And I'm, I'm with you. I can't wait until... You know, uh, we're able to get to the moon. I can't wait until hopefully we can get a sign from SETI, you know, that they can pick up some kind of signal. Sometimes I can't wait till they can 
discover an atmosphere around a, uh, an exoplanet that actually has man-made chemicals in it mm-hmm. where we can determine that that could be a planet with life on it, uh, intelligent life, and life that's advanced in technology like ours. I mean, my God, man, what a, that day I want to, I want to be alive for mm-hmm. that day. And uh, I really do, because it will open up so much, it'll just change everything at that point. I'm hoping it will anyway. At the end of the day, that that kind of exploration and discovery to me is just everything. So So tell us about identifying Patroclus, because I read that uh, article a couple of days ago, and I was absolutely blown away. That was really cool. Yeah, it's um, it has to do with the like I said the image the newest telescope that I have is an imaging telescope and I was actually given that uh, as an ambassador to uh, demonstrate it and to promote it um, with the astronomical society in town and public public events and things like that um, and also to publish the stuff that um, I'm able to uh, to image and to look at and I do post the stuff on Twitter and Facebook and, and things and Instagram just the pictures I get from it. A very good scope and I, and they asked me to do that and they asked a number of us to do it across the country in the in the narrow band in which the light from that uh, star in the asteroid could be captured and in fact what it is is a occultation which is basically the asteroid crossing in front of the star they asked us to get several images and this is for nasa because they're sending a probe to these asteroids they're uh, oh. called trojan asteroids they go around jupiter's orbit so they're not in the asteroid belt and they want to get a better picture of the shape and size of the asteroid. So when we all take these images from a different point across the country, we can they can calibrate that data and actually put together uh, a rough image of what that asteroid might actually look like in terms of shape uh, and its size. So uh, that's what that was, was basically tracking the uh, occultation, the crossing of uh, the asteroid in front of the star. You can, in fact, discover asteroids. You can discover comets with a telescope as well. And you can track asteroids just moving from one place to another in the sky. Uh, you can do that as well. But this was an occultation. It was a very specific thing that they wanted. And uh, I'd do it again if they asked me to, sure. Um, you can also track exoplanet tra- uh, transits in front of other stars with that telescope as well. Um, I haven't done it yet because it takes a lot longer to do. I need a clear sky. I need, you know, a chunk of sky. I can see a clear sky. I need a bunch of time to get all that done. But you can do the same thing with a planet, exoplanet crossing in front of a star. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. That was fairly, and mind you, that was fairly simple. That was not a complicated thing. Literally, I could talk somebody through it uh, in real time, and they would be able to do it. It's very easy um, because of the design of uh, of that particular telescope. It's the newest thing on the market, and it will be improved upon, of course. They're going to make another model, and there will be competitors who will come out with something uh, similar, I am sure, down the line, which will be more accessible to people in terms of the price range. And uh, and, and the ease of use is uh, really uh, incalculable. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how simple and easy it is to use. It's either that or it's a whole bunch of money and a lot of technical expertise and and tinkering and, and you know nuts and bolts and pieces and that's that's the serious stuff and uh, no desire to do that this is what i was looking for and waiting for and sure enough they came out with it so. can you just off the top of my head can you do that where you live or do you have to go out to like the middle of nowhere to get a better uh i can do that where i live the occultation was actually done right here down the street from me i had to go to the park because i couldn't see that chunk of the sky and my house is in a way so i had to go to a different location just down the street but yes i can do it in the city 
and I can image a lot of things uh, in the night sky right in my backyard. Yeah, because the scope has a filter, a dark sky filter built into it, a uh, light pollution filter built into it. So it will filter some of the city lights out. You can't do really long exposures with really faint objects in the city as easily. Uh, you will get some light haze on the image. So you have to go to, for, for, for the really longer exposures and the very faint images with low surface magnets or low surface uh, uh, luminosity, those objects have to, you have to do those in darker skies. I just got back from there a couple, three days ago to do some imaging in the dark skies, you know, it's, you know, it's typically colder out there. <laughs> it's not as comfortable to go out and do that all the time. But, you know, uh, when I get a chance to, I'll go out there. But locally, in my backyard, I've gotten a lot of really nice stuff that looking through the eyepiece, you couldn't see that with any other telescope anywhere on the planet, um, especially in the time it takes to... Uh, to grab the image. It's a matter of one or two minutes, maybe three minutes at the most. The telescope has an eyepiece and it's a great eyepiece with a wide field of view. You can look into it very easily and see the object and you're looking at it right there. Hmm. It cannot do planets. It can't do the moon really well. And do the moon. It can do the moon. It's just not, it's, those are bright objects. This telescope's designed for looking at very diffuse and faint objects. And it does a very good job at doing those with incredible simplicity. I got into uh, astronomy not long ago, probably about a year ago. And in fact, I'm looking right now at my very first telescope I bought. You know, I, I paid $80 for it. It was my first, just, just to see if I would enjoy the hobby. And um, yeah. I've got some new telescopes in, that I'm looking at that I'm going to definitely pick up in the future. Very cool. I own uh, a big side, 10-inch Dobsonian. and I own an 8-inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain. I own a 5-inch, 6-inch uh, Maxudoff Cassegrain. And a, and a short tube refractor um, and a set of uh, astronomical binos, which have a 45 degree uh, diagonal on them. So I can look up without cranking my neck. Uh, so there are those, but if you're, you know, depending upon what you want to do in terms of astronomy, that's where, what it comes down to, what kind of scope that you end up getting. It depends on what you want to look at, and what you want to do and how serious you are about it. I mean, if it's just plunking it down on your balcony and looking at the moon and the planets, you, you don't need a whole lot to do that. And, and that includes the sun with the sun filter. And you can get a couple different types. Some are very expensive and some are really cheap. Uh, if you want to do that, it doesn't take a whole lot of money to do that kind of stuff. If you want to get serious and go out to dark skies and look for objects that uh, are much harder to find until you learn the sky uh, with a computer, then you can take a computer out there and tinker around with all that and get it get it all dialed in it's not always that easy to put the parameters in so you can make it work and find things easily the one that i have now the imaging one is rather pricey at present but it'll do quite a bit so those are things you could see oh my goodness um with just the touch of a button, no setup, no alignment. It aligns itself, works on the GPS from your phone, and does whatever it has to do. I can't say enough about how simple it is, um, but it is pricey. You're a vocal activist for women's rights, vaccinations, you mentioned earlier, social justice. Uh, I got to ask you, as a black man, how far do you think the Black Lives Matter has come since the murder of George Floyd? Um, I think we came about 100 miles since the murder of George Floyd. What I'd love to see is that same enthusiasm for uh, women's rights that we need right now and also for voting rights. I mean, I want to see those kinds of protests in the street that we had for George Floyd. I realized it was during COVID and nobody had a freaking job, but still, 
I would love to see that same enthusiasm and those size that the, the crowd size we had and the, the longevity of those protests and the fierceness of those protests for these other two subjects as we are at the doorstep of right now we're dealing with. Look, it changed the way in which corporations present their products, for God's sake. People have said, what is it? What did the sports teams just change their names? Was it the Indians? Did somebody just, they just changed those the 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 Redskins. Yes, they changed their names for crying out loud. Who could have done that? That would never have happened had it not been for those protests during 2020. Never would have happened. Products have changed their names that have been there for 30, 40, 50 years. They would never have done that. Statues are coming down. Look at the statues that are coming down, right? All the statues coming down as a result of all of that. Incredible. The statues that came down just recently, they took the big statue, Robert E. Lee or whatever it was, down. Look at that. Those are monuments in those cities. Uh, Albeit to the Civil War, they are still monuments. And they have come down. All of these things have happened. The profound awareness of, of what Black Lives Matter did, the you know, because of, of, of what happened to George Floyd and many, many others. I mean, I mean, Tamir, Tamir Rice, uh, Breonna Taylor. I mean, all these these incidents and cases, they, they were all part of that same protest um, and the same concept of that protest. You know, it makes a great Star Trek episode, of course, if it, you know, as a storyline. But at the end of the day, yeah, they were incredibly. Uh, influential. We are literally seeing the physical manifestations of, of, as a result of those protests. We are seeing the physical changes take place in our society that have not taken place for decades and wouldn't have taken place if it hadn't been for those protests. That's a point in time. It's an historical point in time, you know, and we're still, <laughs> yes, I do tweet to my own detriment, probably. I've I have to worry about to call my agent manager and say, look, um, I'm not getting any static or flack from casting about all this stuff, am I? Because (laughs) because I, man, I'm off, you know, I will push the envelope on those things. I am not apologetic. I don't tolerate the fools, man. I don't tolerate the ignorance. And and I don't keep track of everybody who's got a comment about it or whatever if they don't like it. That's too goddamn bad. And I tell them face up. I'm not posting pictures of washing my goddamn dog or what I ate for dinner last night. I don't care about any of that. What's important right now, this country is changing. Right now, we're on the knife's edge. As we speak, we're on the knife's edge. And there is nothing more important than this. Because if you don't, if you let this crap slide, Everybody's going to wake up one day, and of course it'll be too late, and they won't be able to feed their children. They won't be able to have, they won't be able to get them to school. They won't have any school. School will cost more money than they have because the public schools will be gone. You won't be able to read certain books. You won't be able to read this, that. You won't be able to do anything, and you're going to be under an authoritarian government, ruling and controlling, and you'll never have another say-so about anything again. And that's where we're headed if, in fact, they stay on this course. That is not hyperbole that is not you know some you know fantasy uh that is real man that's real i mean right now we're we're, we're with women we're we're damn near catching up to what the what is a fantasy you know the, the, the handmaid's tale tell me that's not the same thing that's what this is people have to goddamn wake up man they gotta wake up this is serious shit i gotta stop watching kardashians and the football game and whatever the hell it is going on. We have to wake up and realize what's happening. 
My God, man. I, I agree. I, history, we've done it before. It's, it's already happened in history, and it can happen again. And it's very insidious. It can creep right through it, not even, you know. This isn't even insidious. It's like your face, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, telling people that you can't, what, you can't vote anymore? You're stopping people from voting, preventing them from voting, and hindering them from voting, and then not counting their vote, perhaps? Yeah, that's where we're headed. Yeah, that's bullshit, man. 100% bullshit. I'm going to keep posting until my skin fingers fall off. I don't blame you. Yeah, I'm glad well, you're able to. I'm glad you like it. I, I, the one the one you said um, earlier, the Texas fall fashion, uh, I, I copied that. I sent it to a few, <laughs> my, my wife and a few friends. And they, not only did they cringe, but they thought it was hilarious as hell. So, <laughs> well, yeah. It, look, if it's a good joke or gag, I yeah. really do enjoy posting them. I, I do bad. enjoy a good laugh and a good satire. I love satire. Yeah. And, you know, I know you've been through it. I know you've experienced it. You probably lost a couple of friends along the way from your past. Yeah. Uh, people that you didn't know were that way i'm sure you've run into it you know and i know living in oklahoma probably more often than not but i know your personal relationships you probably lost you probably lost some friends people you went to school with you grew up with military friends you know military friends who are who have completely crossed over to as it were the dark side yes yes yeah not pleasant and then some yeah that's you know people i know that have family members their own family members their own parents their own brother, their own in-laws, just completely on the other side, man. And I, I can't, you know, I don't have that. Most of my family, my family's all down the line, but I have lost some friends along the way, and uh, no regrets. I mean, I cut them loose, man. I said, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta go. Yeah. Other friends, I've been able to educate a little bit. They were not, you know, entirely aware of what the hell was going on, so I could at least educate them. But what a sorrowful situation or circumstance to be in when you have to you know you have to go through that many pains and things it it wasn't so serious i'd say you know you know i wish to god it was just normalcy and we could debate some damn policy that somebody was passing and go back and forth and have a discussion about that's fine i mean i dig all that but i can't rationalize the uh the the, the concept of uh, again a good Star Trek episode would be, would be the the disinformation and the, mm-hmm. the denial of hard facts and reality. I just I don't. Where do you go with that? How do you combat that? You know. When I end my interviews, which I'm I'm going to ask the last question here is basically this, I ask the same question every single person, and the answers have so varied and so great. And based on what, what you're saying right now, I feel like this can this can definitely bleed into it. And it's, the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, this one broadcast right now, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the entire people of Earth? Oh, to the people of Earth. Here's what I'd like to say. People of Earth, the most recent estimate by astrophysicists and planetary biologists as to the number of potential intelligent civilizations in our galaxy, which is 100,000 plus light years across, billions and billions of stars, triple and quadruple and exponentially more planets than that. Out of all of that, their recent estimate for intelligent life that may exist in this galaxy, based on their observations current, is between 35 and 200. That's it. That's the estimate of civilization, intelligent civilizations they believe exist currently in our galaxy. 
we may as well be alone. If those statistics are accurate, we might as well be alone. We are, this is the most precious island in the cosmos right now. Very, very precious and very rare. Our existence is nothing short of a miracle just because of the variables and factors involved in us getting here. So given that, we need to start thinking about priorities, whether it's the health of the planet, um, our resources, and our own survival as a species. We've got to put the priorities on the human population and the human factors of this planet, as well as the environmental factors of this planet. That's the main thing, because we don't have anywhere else to go here this is it and we may be the only ones for i don't know how many light years from around so we're a rare a rare jewel this is a rare planet and uh we got to take stock in that the priorities have to be shifting to to the people that's got to shift to the people it's got to shift to the planet tim thank you ever so much for coming on the show this has been an absolute treat and you're one of those rare guests where you actually had shit to say, like you had, you had stuff on your chest that you needed to get off. And I, I, I am, I'm a better person for listening to this. I'm not gonna lie to you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, I do have a few things that I have to get off my chest every once in a while. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. I appreciate it, man. Thank I, you, uh, thank you me so on. much. And just like that, we bring another episode of the Derek Duvall show to a conclusion. I want to thank Tim Russ for taking the time out of his very, very busy schedule to stop on by and chat with us. He has been a great guy to bounce ideas off of for my new telescope I'm planning to buy in the future, and I hope maybe down the line our paths will cross again. Coming up, we have another fun interview in the pipe ready for you. I cannot wait for you to all to hear about it, and boy, do we have some special ones being recorded this week. I would love to tell you about them right now, but why spoil the surprise? Remember the success of this show is sourced directly by word of mouth. That's right, you. Get out there. Spread the word. If you know someone who you think would be a phenomenal as a guest, our contact information is listed on DerekDuvallShow.com. So, on behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say be well, be safe, and just get the damn vaccine. Let's all do our parts as human beings to eradicate this virus. Nosta, God bless, and see you very soon. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.